G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Let's talk privacy and some of the latest developments that might make us feel a little uncomfortable. We've begun to hear a lot more about how all the information from our internet use and our mobile phone data is being used and can potentially be used against us. Well, for some, the intrusion into personal information is the best way to protect citizens against the terror threat. But some nations are beginning to use new technology in ways not yet being contemplated by ordinary Australians. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg is quoted as saying, the future is privacy. But not long ago, he was saying, privacy is dead. Let's talk about the future and the use or abuse of our privacy. Mal Fletcher is the founder and chairman of 2020 Plus. He's a respected keynote speaker, social commentator and social futurist based in London. And he's on the line with us from London. Hello, Mal Fletcher. Welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Great to be speaking with you. Mel, you've been reflecting on the way our personal data is being used and you've localised it to something close to home for people who are in London. But as an illustration of just the way things are developing, uh, you've been doing some study around the public transport authorities in London. Uh, What have you found that they are doing with all of this data that people have on their mobile devices? Well, Neil, as you've said, essentially privacy is, in general, one of the biggest social and ethical issues of our time. Uh, It's one of the greatest challenges for governments and public agencies is to maintain that health balance between public security and personal privacy. And I think that principle is illustrated by the Transport for London decision recently to track the use of Wi-Fi use of its customers on London's underground rail system on the tube, and I'm sure many of your listeners have experienced the infamous tube. Um, the authority says that the, informa- the information it gathers from Wi-Fi tracking will be depersonalized. That is, it won't be used to track wi- uh, website use or, or personal details. But once the mechanism's in place, there's no reason why that technology couldn't easily be used to do just that. And if that happened, we'd have yet another case of what we call technology creep, which is where the use of a particular technology extends way beyond the parameters that were originally presented to the public. So it's not just about specific uses of technology, it's about how they might be used in future without the public's consent or knowledge. So this terminology, technology creep, this is something more likely that we're going to be talking about more in depth in the times to come. Public authorities and companies, they're wanting to use this information. And what you're saying is the line is continually moving and it's less and less in the favour of privacy. Well, it can be if we're not vigilant and engaged with the process. I mean, if you take, for example, CCTV cameras, which are widely used across London, I think there's 14 of them now for every individual person in the city, um, 
They were presented to the public some years ago as a way of cutting down on theft, particularly car theft, and they definitely achieved that. But over time, the use of CCTV technology gradually expanded well beyond that to the point where cameras are now used to track parents who double park momentarily while dropping their kids at school. Um, and of course, keeping the roads free is a good thing, but no one's sure that CCTV is the best, most appropriate mechanism for doing that. And the authorities just simply decided that, hey, the tools are already in place, so let's make use of them in this way. Now, over here, we've got the police expressing a strong and growing interest in facial recognition technology. It's the kind of thing that is used so widely and um, intrusively in China. The tech is growing in precision, it's growing in sophistication, but it's a blunt instrument in the wrong hands. So you, you might spend hours tracking thousands of innocent people before you manage to identify even one potential criminal offender. So we do need to be vigilant. So you have facial recognition technology, and as you say, in China, that is being used quite dramatically. Uh, you combine that with the granular information that's coming through our mobile phones that we're carrying with us through public spaces. Uh, that compounds the whole Big Brother-like idea of keeping an eye on and knowing exactly what we're doing at every moment. Yes, well... I'm actually thinking these days that rather than Big Brother, we should be talking about Bigger Brother because, in a sense, uh, Big Brother is already in place. Um, we live in a surveillance economy largely by public consent. People make money today out of attracting and holding our attention, particularly online. Um, a recent example of that was a study found that 60% of smart toys now send information to marketers. So you buy your child a toy with an inbuilt camera and a microphone, which is all very cool and fun, and there's a 60% chance that the data collected will be sold to marketers and used to pitch other products to children. Um, I mentioned China, where we see invasion. Members of the public can now be identified by their gait, the way they walk. This isn't widespread in use in China yet, but it, it's been publicly announced that the government is seriously looking at adopting it. Meanwhile, you said closer to home, we've got big tech like Facebook and other co uh, companies who are selling our data to third parties, often without our consent, and that increases the potential for identity theft or fraud. And while governments have made a lot of noise thus far about reducing the power of big tech, to date very little has actually been done, and we need to see that change. And balancing all of this, Mal, this idea that terrorism, of course, is a very real threat and shouldn't we actually be encouraging authorities to use whatever data they can to eliminate that sort of threat? This is the balance here. This is where there's got to be tension between two extremes. Yes, there is. I mean, we're willing to trade, I think, some of our security in the name of, or some of our privacy in the name of security. But we, we the public, not just the government, have to be very wary of just how far that line shifts. And, and without pitching headlong into the world of Dan Brown conspiracy theories, I think we have to question how technology that of the kind being used now by Transport for London and the tube system might also be used by security agencies. GCHQ over here is what we call the British government's communication headquarters. It's responsible for identifying potential threats to the UK using, among other things, security technology. And given the often very serious threats of terrorism on London's packed tube, GCHQ, I think, will be keen to use whatever means it can to track movements of potential aggressors. 
it already has access to at least some of the data from the London Tube system through uh, ticket, uh, ticket systems and CCTV cameras, but this new system might allow them to take it a step further if they choose to remove the anonymous factor and add names to the data. And so here we have the principle of innocent until proven guilty arguably coming under further threat. I imagine there's a question here of who would have the authority to remove that anonymity. And I imagine that uh, different people come to power and perhaps in government uh, they have more of an idea of intrusion as being beneficial in controlling the society. That can happen really at whatever might the next election might be. Yes, you're right. I mean, what one government today promises in good faith to do with data, the next government might choose to depart from that decision and do something more with it. And if technology creep holds true in that case, they wouldn't necessarily inform us of that decision or involve us in that decision. And look, we, we live in the age of big data. We, we've got to face the fact that it's in place. We don't want to turn back the clock. We're not Luddites smashing machines in the 19th century. Um, we accept that huge networks of computers today can collate and analyse all the data gathered from mobile services, including our phones and sat-navs and the like. And this is a very positive thing. It helps medicos, for example, to make more accurate diagnoses of disease. But despite the upsides, there are downsides too. And one of them is that big data of any form, whether it's used by government or businesses, is a form of soft surveillance. Um, your listeners may remember a couple of years ago, Samsung TV issued a warning to the users of its smart TV units uh, the units can actually record entire conversations in the living room and store them in the cloud. Samsung was concerned that hackers could access that data and use it for criminal purposes. And I think, you know, George Orwell would have loved that. Your TV is watching you. So we just need to be aware. Yes, there are positives to big data, but let's at least be aware of some of the dangers and keep governments and businesses accountable for them. Mal Fletcher is a social futurist. He tracks major social shifts and writes lectures and broadcasts about their likely future impact on business and organisations and the wider society. Mal Fletcher's our guest on the line from London. We'll talk some more in just a short while. We're taking a little time to unpack some of the latest developments that might make us feel a little uncomfortable about the way our information is being used. An intrusion into our privacy with our internet use, with our mobile phones, with the new ways that our data is being monitored, whether it's for a very good reason, maybe to address issues of terror, or whether it could, in fact, change and turn against us. Mel, someone who is a Christian who might be saying, I don't like this idea of my data being used by what, as you say, could be a bigger brother model. Uh, what would be my response? Uh, withdraw or somehow rather try and monitor and and even uh, try and keep your data a little safer than it, it than perhaps it is? Or is that impossible to do? Well, that's a very good question, um, Neil. I think that uh, first things first, the principle behind our engagement with technology shouldn't be one of resisting technology. If you look at history, uh, you mentioned people of Christian faith, uh, Christians have often been at the forefront of adopting and adapting new technologies. They've often been the first adopters and adapters of any new technology. We go back to the printing press for just one example, but I could give you many through history. Um, you know, 
being a person of Christian faith does not necessarily mean that you are a Luddite, that you are an, uh, an anti-tech person. I think, though, that it does cause you to thoughtfully question some of the uses of technology and at least to press the pause button on progress. You know, we're not against progress, but we may be against progressivism, which says that all change is necessarily good change. We may raise the question, well, maybe we need to give more thought to the unintended consequences of this new technology before we launch fully into it, which is what I call ultra-pragmatism. When, when a technologist says, if it can be done, it should be done now, that raises problems. As we've seen recently in cases of genetic engineering in China, people, have, scientists have raised questions about the ethics of this and the unintended consequences for the next generation. So I don't think Christian faith precludes us from being engaged, and I don't think we should start off with a paranoid uh, mentality. We cannot engage a culture that we've already declared effectively our enemy. Uh, so we, we need to stay on the front foot, but we, we do need to be prepared to be boldly questioning things like unintended consequences and the ethics of the technology and its uses. There is that sentiment that if you aren't doing anything wrong, you have nothing to worry about. But as uh, laws are changing, even as they are in numerous places throughout the Western world and the potential for even criminalising what we've known as traditional Christian values. That's where we might get a little worried, Mal. Yes, uh, I, I agree with that. And I think that this is not something that is new to society and history. It has happened many times before. Every generation, in a sense, faces incremental change of one degree or another, which may or may not threaten what they see to be their morality and their ethics, uh, particularly if they're people of faith. Um, but I think what I was saying essentially is that we need to keep on the front foot with it and keep as part of the discussion. Um, we need to engage the culture with curiosity. Um, a friend of mine puts this rather nicely when he says that um, sometimes Christians are like the sad man at the party who waits until everybody is having the peak amount of enjoyment, chatting about whatever, and then jumps in with something sad and miserable to say. I think we have to engage with, with curiosity, with positivity, and say, well, have you thought about X? And rather than throwing cliched answers at people, perhaps simply quoting Scripture when they don't share our assumptions about Scripture in the first place, we need to be bringing Christian worldview into terms that they can relate to in terms of the issue of the day. Um, which is what I and others seek to do in the marketplace all the time. We don't always get it right, but we, we're attempting it. And uh, I would encourage anyone who is of Christian faith that's listening today to think along those lines. So utilising the opportunity where the technology is increasing because there will be extra bonus opportunities and Christians ought to be looking for those opportunities when they appear. The other side of the coin, of course, though, and we are talking in some sense today about the caution that is required, there's some suggestion that there may even be new activist groups who will rise up in the times to come who really are against this sort of intrusion. What are your thoughts for the sorts of groups that might arise into the near future? Yes, well, there are some already existing in, in here in London and in other major centres of the world. But um, I think the next generation, or the emerging generation, I should say, sort of what I call Generation Edge, some people call them Generation Z, which 
for me denotes sleepiness, and I don't think they're a sleepy generation. These are the teenagers of today into the very early 20s. And there's some evidence now that we're going to see pockets of this generation forming into what I call groups of techno-refuseniks. They're not people who deny technology altogether. They're simply people who say, I will not be defined by the data about me on the Internet. So even if you have all my data, you don't really know me. And for that reason, they're going to want to limit their um, digital footprint. So we are seeing evidence now, even in the field of robotics, we're seeing this, where certain groups are rising up to demand that there are strict controls on the way robotic machines are developed from here on, especially as we start inviting technology into our bodies through nanorobotics and, and so on. I imagine that as we see what's happening in places like China, where they've got that uh, facial recognition technology we are talking about a little earlier, and the idea that they might even have a social system where people are given credits, and if you go over the prescribed number of credits, you'd be brought in for some questioning or for some re-education. I imagine that where we start to see those things happen, that we ought to be very cautious and perhaps even resistant to that, uh, but at the same time embracing some of these things that will, in fact, cause our lives to be safer, more secure, our nation to be more secure. How do you get the balance right, Mal? Well, it's a very difficult thing to do, Neil, and every situation, of course, is slightly different. I think, it, as I said a moment ago, it does help that you have a proactive mindset. None of us can future-proof our lives. We can't build our lives in such a way that we're resistant to change in the future. It's, it's impossible. We can't control the future. But we can at least try to engage with a future-minded thought process, a future-minded mindset, so that we're not necessarily afraid of everything that's coming down the pike. And when it, coming back to privacy that you mentioned a moment ago, um, it does have an impact on our personal choices. The power of what we call social acculturation, or some people call it peer pressure, means that we sometimes behave quite differently as human beings if we know that other people are watching us or focus, focusing on us. And that's why we saw in the recent Australian election, opinion polls are so often misleading in the run-up to elections because when interviewed, people sometimes express a very different voting intention than the one they carry through in the privacy of the voting booth. We do tend to act differently uh, when our privacy is being in some way invaded, uh, so it does affect the way we make choices. And as you seem to be suggesting here, there is likely to arise a new style of social behaviour where on the outside people might appear to be doing what is expected by the government, but on the inside they may have a completely different mindset. Yes, I mean that possibility has always existed because a society is a collective of thinking individuals, so we probably all think things that the government doesn't know about and that's we don't want thought police that can actually read the mind so yes i mean i think that's part of a healthy society um but another thing to recognize i think in all of this is that data overload uh whether it's data that is used by governments or by big business especially as it relates to marketing impacts our choices our our personal data taken from social media and the internet generally is, of course, used to pitch at us ever more individualized, invasive forms of advertising. Governments do it. Businesses do it. And the amount of marketing we take in actually does provide a thing called choice overload. And there's a study you might find interesting a few weeks ago of judges here that showed that parole requests 
are more likely to be accepted if the judge hears the case either at the start of the day or just after lunch when they're relatively fresh. So the more data the judge has to take in over the day, the more choices he or she has to make, the more likely they are to opt for the default, which is to leave a person exactly where they are in prison. So the point is that this data overload, which comes through marketing provided by our private information, our data, can actually affect us in turn uh, in terms of making worse choices. And it sounds like the sorts of decisions that could be made about us, uh, where you talk about judges on a bench, perhaps a judge on a bench making a decision according to what he's uh, getting from a machine uh, that's actually helping that judgment to happen. Uh, That's another scary thought in itself. It's interesting, and just to draw attention to that, when we're talking about the transport uh, situation in London, you're not saying that that is... Big Brother or Bigger Brother on its way. That's just a a symptom of what's happening as this technology creep takes a hold and uh, the more sinister ways may yet be uh, yet to unfold. And, uh, of course, it all depends on who's in power and who's making decisions about that data. Uh, So, uh, so far as the future goes, Mal, uh, is this a bright thing we're talking about or is this something we ought to be concerned about? Well, Neil, I I have a saying that goes like this. Uh, Technology is not destiny. As human beings, our future is not a product of the technologies we choose to use. It is a product of how we choose to use them, how we employ them. So the technology is not the issue. It never is, never has been. It's just a tool. And if I'm a person of Christian faith, I happen to be, but I believe that Genesis 1.28 Uh, lends itself very well to our discussion about technology when the first command we were given was a command to have positive influence in our world and environment, to fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, which is not domination, it's not an abusive term, it's a stewardship, a loving caring for uh, each other and for for, uh, creation. Technology is really us applying our God-like and God-given ingenuity to the resources of nature to come up with tools whereby we can better steward, steward creation. Um, and I think that we just need to maintain that sort of proactive uh, mentality rather than a dive under the bed and wonder whether this is the mark of the beast or some other thing, you know. I'm not belittling that idea. I'm just saying that change comes incrementally and it's always in our hands how far that change goes, especially in liberal democracies. And we need to take our... Uh, responsibilities and our power in that type of a, a democracy seriously paul didn't have that he he had many things going for him but he didn't live in a liberal democracy uh, we do and we have the, the power to actually change things and we need to keep that positive mentality remember that technology isn't destiny well mal fletcher is founder and chairman of 2020 plus and you'll find good resources when you visit his website 2020 plus that's 2020 plus.net mal's a social futurist and based in london mal just appreciate you taking some time to share these thoughts with listeners uh, super valuable and uh, really appreciate you thank you for being with us today on 2020 Great pleasure, Neil. Great to speak again to my homeland. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. 
Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.